justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and with Scott Henson, we're Reasonably Suspicious. This week, Galveston police officers were dispatched to pursue a capuchin monkey named Lily who's roaming the streets of downtown. This is the second time in several months officers have been dispatched to pursue a monkey in Galveston. But as of the time of this recording, Lily remains at large. So, Scott, what do you make of Lily's time on the lam? Well, what surprised me the most, I guess, though I should have expected it, was Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo going on TV to blame bail reform for the (laughs) monkey being free in the first place. I, I feel like that's premature, that at this point we really have no idea about this monkey's backstory. Why was the monkey free? I don't know, but, but, you know. Yeah, well, it also is unknown, right, whether it's one or more than one monkey, right? We don't know if it's the same monkey. That's exactly right. So maybe the, maybe the monkey was not released on bail at all. It's yeah. hard to understand. Or it doesn't have priors. That's right. Totally leaping to conclusions here. <laughs> this this monkey is being slandered is, is my position. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the January 2020 episode of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend, Mandy Marzullo, who is no longer the executive director of the Texas Defender Service, but is a much happier person as a result. How are you doing today, Mandy? Wonderful. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> This month, the Travis County District Attorney wants pot possession prosecuted and refuses to recognize a babysitter's innocence claims, while the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals says TDCJ officials couldn't have known making a prisoner sleep in urine and feces for six days might be a constitutional violation. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? Uh, The Fifth Circuit's ruling on, you know, forcing inmates to sleep in, you know, human excrement. It's worth a discussion, for sure. Absolutely. First up, the Texas Tribune reported this month that marijuana prosecutions dropped by two-thirds statewide. That's about 4,000 fewer cases per month after the legislature legalized hemp and inadvertently made it more difficult and expensive to prosecute low-level marijuana cases. In Austin, the city council wants to codify this change and essentially decriminalize user-level marijuana possession. But District Attorney Margaret Moore says failing to prosecute marijuana cases encourages violent crime. Scott, who's right? I don't know if the city council is right, but Margaret Moore couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This, this thing where we just blame violent crime on marijuana has got to stop. And the idea that she thinks that's going to fly in a Democratic primary is really rather bizarre. I mean, I think in reality, no one has been saying that these fewer marijuana prosecutions are causing any problem. We're seeing a little bit of law enforcement agencies saying, oh, great, we get to deploy those officers elsewhere. So, you <laughs> and know, prioritize violent crime. That's right. Prioritize something different, more serious. But uh, but I, I think that uh, this has been this odd natural experiment in many ways. Right. No one yeah. expected marijuana enforcement to to cease in the counties that it has stopped in. And so we have some counties that have continued to try and enforce it. Others that have simply stopped and we're not really seeing any difference in, mm-hmm. you know, 
the public safety as a result. And so uh, I find it fascinating, and it's also just a little strange that the district attorney, who doesn't even prosecute these little petty marijuana cases, is making feels a the need to to come out and say this. Yeah, and it's it's also you know. We should mention that this is an extremely modest action on the part of city council. They're not codifying any sort of legislation. What they're doing is using the power of the purse here and, you know, basically defunding testing for these low level marijuana cases. But that doesn't preclude her from testing in cases where someone is distributing marijuana or has possession of a large quantity that. For some reason, they don't believe they're distributing. <laughs> Let me just clarify for listeners um, who may not remember, even though we've talked about this a few times before on the podcast, that the Texas legislature last year legalized hemp, which, of course, is the exact same plant as marijuana. But they defined hemp as having less than 0.3 percent of THC. And I'm not sure 0.3 percent of what, but but that was the definition. Well, the problem is no Texas crime labs had the equipment that you need in order to do that test. And so all of a sudden you couldn't go to court and prove that any given plant material was marijuana and not hemp. And so we have seen again, this two thirds reduction in uh, prosecutions as a result. And I don't know. I just think the sky hasn't fallen here. Yeah, no, it really hasn't. And then just one final point. Margaret Moore has a slush fund that she can dip into and, you know, in the form of asset forfeiture funds that if she really wanted to test in one case for some reason, she could do it on her own. That's right. It's 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 a false argument for sure. In our home court disadvantage segment, Scott and I discuss recent Texas court cases that deserve listeners' attention. First, the Court of Criminal Appeals turned down the habeas corpus petition of Joe Bryan, a Boss County school principal who was convicted of his wife's murder in 1985, based almost entirely on blood spatter evidence, which has now been disproven and recanted. Scott, where does this ruling leave things? Unfortunately, this appears to be the last opportunity in court for, for Joe Bryan, and now things turn to the parole process. Joe Bryan's 80 years old. He's not a risk to anyone, but he's been denied parole in the past based on just the nature of the crime that he was convicted of. Well, now, even though the Court of Criminal Appeals won't acknowledge it, there's really pretty sound evidence that he didn't commit that crime, that the blood spatter evidence that was the main accusatory forensics against him were simply false. They've been recanted even by the guy who who testified in the first place. And so it's really up to the parole board. Um, he's up again for parole in April. And if 
they, you know, grant him relief, then he can get out and, and spend his final days with his family. You know, the other thing I'd say about this is that he's not the only 80 year old man in there who really doesn't need to be there. I mean, we've got a whole unit of elderly prisoners who mm-hmm. really at this point pose no risk were convicted decades ago. And his is especially poignant because it's an innocence case, but he really represents sort of a big group of folks that it's kind of pointless for us to continue incarcerating. Yeah. Especially if they're innocent and if the court isn't releasing someone given all of the evidence that's been presented, it kind of begs the question, what are the roles of the other branches? You know, parole was used much more liberally at the, at the, you know, the turn of the last century. Maybe we need to go back to that. Right. Well, and the final thing to say about this, I guess, is to me, and I'm not an attorney, but I feel like the Court of Criminal Appeals really abdicated its responsibility here by not providing its reasons for turning down his writ. You know, certainly anyone who's worked in the innocence world has wanted, you know, uh, someone who they thought was innocent to, to have their writ approved. And when they're denied, you can disagree with the judges about their reasoning. But if they're simply not going to give us their reasoning, then it's very difficult to trust the outcome. Yeah. And that's what happened here. It's it's disrespectful to the process. It's it's just a power play. It just says, well, we have our votes. We don't have to give our reasons. We can just do what we want to. And they did. And I get that that's how the system works, but it's it, it has a bad look to it. It has a bad feel to it. And uh, and I think it's something where the parole board needs to step up. Yeah. Next up, Travis County DA Margaret Moore came up for criticism in a federal courtroom recently for insisting she intends to retry Rosa Jimenez a babysitter convicted of murdering an infant in her care based on junk science 17 years ago. Now, four different judges have found she is likely innocent and should be released, but Moore's office insisted they plan to retry her despite the lack of accusatory evidence. Judge Lee Yackel has ordered Ms. Jimenez to be released, but prosecutors asked for a stay. Mandy and I recently attended a hearing where Federal Magistrate Judge Andrew Austin considered their request. Court calls the following for a motion hearing, 112 CV 373, Rosa Estella Obera Jimenez versus Lori Davis. Prosecutors had told the court that Ms. Jimenez could be deported back to Mexico if she were remanded to Travis County for possible retrial. Judge Austin wasn't buying it. Here's how he characterized the decision before him. I mean, I, I think I'm supposed to balance a number of factors. Of course. And, and the injury to the state is one of those. Um, Again, it sounds like the injury you're talking about is eh, there might be a mootness. We're not sure. I'm not even going to. It's too discounted to even talk about ICE taking custody until I hear evidence that that's a likelihood. So we might have to retry her, and that could maybe moot the case. I guess there's the cost if, if, the, if the appeal were uh, successful and uh, Judge Echols' judgment is reversed then there'll be a cost to the county to getting ready for a trial that they didn't need to get ready for. 
But when I look at the other side of this, we've got a person who's been in jail for 17 years. It's been found that it was an unconstitutional trial, so there's not a valid basis on which she should be held that long. And letting her sit for another year or more while the circuit is reviewing the case, when that time could be used for getting ready for trial, when you've got the medical issues, that sounds like a pretty easy balance. I mean, you'd still be able to retry the case. I get your argument, but I'm not very persuaded, as might be obvious. If I could address the comment about the relative state factors. The harm to the state, I think, to succeed on the state doesn't have to be irreparable. I think it's Ms. Mendez's burden to show irreparable harm if a state is issued. We have to show substantial harm absent the state. Well, I would think a year in jail, that's kind of irreparable, isn't it? My point on the state's burden... Wait, can you answer my question? Spending a year in jail, an extra year, because this is what we're saying. If we grant a stay, everything sits status quo, apparently. We wait for the circuit to rule. Let's say it takes a year. And then, according to Travis Canyon, it'll take another year to get the retrial going. And let's say she's successful and acquitted. She'll have spent an extra year in jail that she didn't need to spend, on top of the 17 she's already spent. That's not irreparable? Again, my understanding from the motion is that we're talking about transfer of custody from state custody to ICE custody. That's what we've said. All right, sit down. I mean, come on. Really? As the judge pressed for any factual basis for the prosecution's brief, the two lawyers representing the Texas Attorney General's office kept obfuscating the core issues in their responses. Finally, Judge Austin had had enough. I think I'm asking direct questions, and I keep getting indirect answers, and it's very frustrating. Mr. Coonan, I already have had enough of that, but I'm not getting direct answers from you either. But the most dramatic moment of the hearing was when Judge Austin expressed dismay that Travis County District Attorney Margaret Moore's office planned to retry Jimenez instead of seeking a time-served plea deal or even agreeing to her actual innocence claim. Am I understanding that Margaret Moore is hot to retry this case? Yes, sir. Really? Has she read the four different judges' orders who have all said that they think this is a very infirm trial and that there's likely an innocent woman who's sitting in jail for 17 years and Margaret Moore really wants to retry her? I do not know what she's read or what she hasn't read, Your Honor, but it is my understanding that she is willing to retry this case. Well, I, two years ago, tried to get these parties to talk, and I think it's very frustrating when the number of, I mean, this is not a normal case. When the trial judge who tried the case says, I think this person is not guilty, that's what he put in writing. When a former court of criminal appeals judge sits over a habeas proceeding and a Travis County District judge and he says, if this testimony had been heard by a jury, their verdict would likely have been different, and the verdict was guilty. Different means not guilty. And then I've found that same thing, as has Judge Yackel. It's distressing to me that we're just treating this like it's just an average case and we're just going to kind of go through the motions, and that's frustrating to me because that's how it looks. All right. Is there anything else, any other evidence anybody needs to submit? Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case will be submitted.
Thank you. Y'all may be excused. All rise. Mandy, what's the district attorney thinking here? You know, I don't know. Um, in full disclosure to our listeners, I'm actually a consultant on this case, so I don't want to get too much into the weeds. But, you know, as, you know, federal magistrate Judge Austin noted in a hearing on the 14th, this is an extraordinary case. This has given him and any other judge who's really looked at the facts of it serious pause about her guilt. Uh, you know, her trial was manifestly unjust. And, you know, keeping her in the state's custody at this point is affecting her health. She has four, stage four kidney disease. She will need to go on dialysis soon and probably have a transplant. But she cannot get on a transplant list while she's in state custody. So I, I hope DA Moore takes a good look at this case. I really don't know what the DA's office is thinking here. And again, it's very, it's similar to the last one we talked about, the Joe Bryan case. It's one thing to stand up and, and, or one thing for her to stand up in court and say, you know, we want to retry her because we still think X, Y, or Z evidence, you know, still stands. It's another to stand up there when all of the accusatory evidence has really been wiped out. None of those forensics that accused her originally are are still considered valid. And so to just stand up and say, nope, we're going to retry her. I don't have to give a reason. That's my purview. I was as frustrated as the judge was. He was um, uh, very flustered with them. And uh, at one point, finally just told the, he didn't use the word shut up, but he told the attorney general lawyer who was there, just sit down, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they, they weren't as prepared as they should have been. <laughs> well, and I think they expected a lot more deference to the prosecutorial position than maybe mm. they were given. But at this point, you know, that magistrate judge had, he said, issued, issued a 70 page opinion on this topic. Yeah. Well, once a judge has written a 70 page opinion, if you want to keep arguing, you need to be very specific you need to to be very respectful because they've obviously are invested yeah. in 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 that opinion and and just sort of contradicting them without giving reasons, which is what was going on in that courtroom, uh, isn't enough. That's going to get you in trouble, and it and it kind of did. So I don't know what they're thinking there, and was shocked that they were that adamant that they were going to move forward mm. on such a weak case. Yeah. Fifth Circuit ruled that a jury might reasonably find the Texas Department of Criminal Justice behaved with deliberate indifference and put Trent Taylor in substantial risk of serious harm when they kept him naked and sleeping on the floor in a John T. Montford unit cell smeared with feces and with no access to clean water. But the Fifth Circuit threw out most of Taylor's claims, ruling that qualified immunity protected the guards and the agency. Mandy, given this ruling, what remedies are available when Texas prisoners are put at substantial risk of serious harm through the government's deliberate indifference? Is there someone to whom they should perhaps write a harshly worded letter <laughs> if the courts aren't going to respond? It's um, 
This is a really disappointing opinion for a lot of reasons, and I hope the Fifth Circuit takes it up on bonk. If this opinion holds, prisoners are going to be limited in pursuing, sorry, pursuing conditions claims that have only been litigated before. Essentially, the Fifth Circuit said clearly the circumstances in which this man was detained is an Eighth Amendment violation. I mean, it's hard to justify there was feces in the faucet. Not just on the on the ceiling, which you know you have to wonder how that happens. He was told to urinate into a drain that was clogged. So part of the issue in the case is that he had to hold his own urine um, and was not given access to a bathroom. He actually ended up being hospitalized, and that claim that he was not given access to a bathroom is the only claim that was left standing at this point because someone else had litigated that, but. You know, I think the Fifth Circuit is really There's nothing new under the sun for the Fifth Circuit. Yeah, no, exactly. Or everything is new, right? And if it's new, then the guards don't have notice that they could be liable. Got That's it. essentially everything's new under the sun. Everything's new unless they have said don't do that. But really, you know, this is an egregious situation. You, you know, we shouldn't have to tell you don't do that when it's leaving a prisoner in a in circumstances smeared with feces without access to fresh water. Yeah, exactly. Like if you did this outside of the prison context, like let's say, you know, if a parent did this to a child, that's someone who's in their custody, in control, who they can restrict, right? Right. You can legally keep the child in in their bedroom. mm -hmm. You can't legally keep them there smeared in feces with no access to fresh water. Yeah, and no bathroom and to sleep in the feces. That, that would, Someone's going to put you in jail for that. Yeah, and for six days. And part of the issue there is that they said, well, the duration of the detention is part of the issue. If he had been in, it was clear from their opinion that if he was detained in that facility for 30 days, that would be an Eighth Amendment violation because the government has said that detaining people in that manner is unconstitutional so six days in that six, manner is not long enough not or it is now is this notice now going forward that you can't keep them past six days what yeah you, up to six days it, but maybe three we don't know three will probably be okay especially if you let them try to clean it if you let the inmate try and clean it. yes if you give the the inmate cleaning supplies that may affect it also because they found in a previous case that a three-day detention in a disgusting cell in which the prisoner was given the opportunity to clean it is not an Eighth Amendment violation. So really, it's just a mess, the case law on this issue. I think they are creating a problem in some ways by telling people to just provide sanitary conditions. These aren't these aren't just bad or poor conditions. We're not saying that the defendant should live, you know, should be detained in a five-star hotel room. Right. Well, and this is, you know, an ongoing frustration at TDCJ because, you know, county jails have independent oversight. They have the Texas Commission on Jail Standards that sends in inspectors and, you know, they aren't perfect, but they actually find violations a lot and are pretty good about, you know, eventually at least coercing the jails to to become compliant and -hmm. stuff that's this bad they you know really can strong arm them and and have in the past and so we don't have independent oversight at tdcj what forever 
whatsoever. Excuse me. Their board is absolutely not independent. They're mm-hmm. looking to avoid litigation and to mitigate the impacts of litigation or to keep from having to do too much in response to it. We we just don't have systems that track all this the way we do for the county jails or for the juvenile system where we have an independent ombudsman that goes in and interviews inmates at, at youth prisons. We don't have anything comparable to that at TDCJ. And I know that you know, the committee chairman at the legislature say, oh, well, we're the oversight. You know, the Senate criminal justice chairman, John Whitmire, or, you know, James White over the corrections committee in the House. But the reality is that this has been going on a really long time, and those folks are not intervening to really change things. That's not that's not doing it. And so if you can't bring it to the federal courts, and if the legislature is not going to do anything and there's no executive branch institutions designed to uh, address this, then everybody's just kicking the can down the road. And these prisoners who in this case are literally in feces covered cells are just left to rot. Yeah. And there's good reason to believe he's not the only one. You know, in, sure. in well, the he, they said the whole cell, the other cells were like that. Right? <laughs> yeah, that ended up in the Fifth Circuit opinion. That yeah, that was part of the response that he had when he complained. Is that well, it's every cell here. That's insane. And so the Montford unit sounds like it is quite literally a shithole, <laughs> as as described in this in this uh, Fifth Circuit opinion. Yeah, and it, it boggles the mind. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Video emerged of Texas Department of Public Safety troopers who were patrolling the streets of Dallas on Governor Greg Abbott's order, engaging in a high-speed pursuit of a young man who failed to signal a lane change, shooting him in his driveway when he emerged from his car with a pistol. But many urban police departments have restricted police pursuits because so many end in a loss of life. For example, if Dallas police department officers saw the failure to signal infraction, their departmental policies would have prohibited them from engaging in the pursuit. So Scott, what are the lessons that you would take from this episode? I think the biggest one is that state troopers at the Department of Public Safety really should not be deployed in urban areas under sort of their old rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. This governor has been really the first one who we've seen deploying them in in cities. Uh, Rick Perry deployed the DPS troopers for the first time to patrol the border. Mm -hmm. But again, that's still mostly out in rural areas. You're sort of putting them out in the boondocks to stare across the river with binoculars in many cases. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not uh, sending them into South Dallas, which is what happened here. Um, Governor Abbott, in response to reports of high crime, sent state troopers to patrol. Well, their rules of engagement are very, very different Mm -hmm. and and should be. Um, You know, when you think about it, the state trooper who's normally out on the highways, if someone fails to pull over when they turn their lights on, it's fairly reasonable for them to go ahead and pursue. It, it doesn't pose the same safety risks mm-hmm. as it does weaving in and out of an urban area. But most urban police departments have very different policies. And as just as Dallas police could not have 
chase someone only over failure to signal. There has to be some um, more serious offense or mm-hmm. a gun involved or uh, uh, some some risk that they can identify that raises it up, you know, to a, to a higher threshold. If DPS had just let the guy go, he was headed home, and when he got home, it would be over, and he'd be alive. And so, you know, it's a really good example of why those policies are in place, and it avoids an unnecessary heightening of a confrontation when, you know, really they could write the guy's license plate number down, go follow up later, and everyone is going to be much safer. In Austin, the former head of the APD sex crimes unit, Liz Donegan, was criticized in an internal memo to departmental brass for failing to make detectives in her unit attend trainings in the read technique for police interrogations. Mandy, is this something she deserved to be attacked for? No. The read technique has been associated with several wrongful confessions. So, you know, at this point, she's probably justified in making the determination that this is not a requirement for her staff. It, it makes sense. I, I think it's something she, she should be praised for. I couldn't <laughs> believe it was framed as an attack. Yeah. Last one. In its self-evaluation for the Sunset Commission, the Texas Commission on Jail Standards said some counties are trying to avoid submitting death in custody reports when inmates perish in their custody by claiming charges were dropped when they're sent to the hospital. Others have hidden behind privatization contracts to refuse to share medical records with investigators. Scott, who can fix this? If anyone can, it's really only the Texas legislature. Um, This is an example of counties basically thumbing their nose at the investigation requirements that were laid out under the Sandra Bland Act. Mm -hmm. And if the legislature wants that enforced, they're going to have to come back and put some teeth into those requirements. Yeah. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train went nowhere, Lord, and the ticket price show is high. Stop the train. 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 I'm getting off. When the train pulls into the station, when the driver blows his horn, my baby will be there waiting, Lord, just as sure as the day you were born. And the doors of the train will open, and the platform people will flood. A voice rang from heaven saying your debt was paid with blood. Stop the train, 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 stop the train. I'm getting on. Stop the train, stop the train, stop the train, stop the train. Stop the train. Stop the train.
Now.